Welcome to Maximizing Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now here's your host, John Gilroy. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dave Venegren, Director, Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology. You know, there's no cookie-cutter solutions when an agency wants to move to the cloud. What criteria should they start, and when should they begin an evaluation, Dave? Thank you, John. And, John, thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to have a chance to speak with you and, and your listeners. So the criteria that I would consider when moving to the cloud is really all about how can I take advantage of the cloud strengths. So the cloud is a resource that's fully managed. So the criteria that I would ask would be our, how many resources are we using today to manage our current workload? And will I benefit by moving to the cloud? And if I have um, a, an environment or an application that's currently being heavily managed, can I reduce manpower and can I reduce uh, services by going to the cloud? And then I would look to sort of the cloud strengths. What is the cloud best for elasticity? The ability to scale on demand when needed. So as you know, AWS started to offer cloud services because they had to create such a huge infrastructure to sell their online books, right? And that came in this peak time, December-ish, you know, holiday season. And from February through October, they had a lot of resources available no one was using. So they had this brilliant idea, hey, let's lease compute and storage. That idea of elasticity scaling up when demand is, um, is high is, was the core to the AWS offering and other cloud offerings. So if you have a workload that has this spiky demand, perhaps FEMA um, disaster, um, disaster relief calls, call centers, that's going to spike after an event, that would be a terrific criteria for um, the elastic features of the cloud. So what role does analytics play in, in even considering a move to the cloud? So I, I kind of look at that from a, two lenses, um, John. First is, do I have an analytics program that I want to migrate to the cloud? And the other one is, how can I use analytics to help me get to the cloud? Those are sort of two different ideas. Um, would you like me to explore both? Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So if I'm moving an existing set of analytics, perhaps I've been using infrastructure to build a machine learning algorithm um, on-site, I probably invested a lot in compute and storage to develop those models on-prem. So if that's the kind of a workload that I'm moving and I go to the cloud, then I can take advantage of lower-cost storage and this elastic compute that I mentioned earlier to build my models and then let those compute modules go. Let Turn them off, not pay rent on them. There's an old expression, pay by the drink, right? So we let those compute modules go, and then I've got my model that's trained. So that's how I would think about moving analytics to the cloud. The second part of your question, the second part of my answer would be, how can I use analytics to understand what I have to migrate to the cloud? And that's where data profiling and data understanding really come to play. If we have a huge amount of data on site, on prem, and some of it are some of it is dead, you have dead zones, some of your analytics or reports or applications are not being used. You can use data analytics to get a sense, if you will, a census is probably a better word, an assessment of what you're using, and what you could move to the cloud. Inevitably, the topic comes up of public and private and, and hybrid clouds. Mm -hmm. But I imagine you could use analytics to determine what's the best solution for each federal agency. That's an interesting question. If I were to consider what were the criteria between choosing public, private, 
and hybrid solution. I, I don't know if I would pose the question or I would, I would look at it as if it was an either or. I think what we're seeing in the federal space is that our agencies want to move to the public cloud as much as they can, but they can't move everything. There are certain workloads that don't belong in the cloud. Some of the more um, uh, storage intensive ones, think of uh, storing large amounts of data for a long period of time. Those will do well on-premise in a data center. There's no need to move large amounts of data to the cloud. However, if you have um, the, the need to analyze data in the cloud or you have a small amount of data to move to the cloud, then using the public resources is probably a good way to go. Um, private is in something I think that, this is my opinion, I'm, you could uh, check the facts on this. I think private is sort of a, whole, uh, is a transitionary idea Private clouds, generally speaking, you get the best and the worst of both worlds. You get this ability to control your own environment and have some resources on-prem. But at the same time, you're kind of locked out of the innovation cycle that the public cloud offers. You're, you're, you've got this, if you will, set of services that are wrapped in uh, cast in stone. And once you put them in place, um, you're not really being able to update them. Um, you're not availing yourself of all the resources that are available. Are there any specific tools that an agency can use when trying to see what the best fit is? Deciding between those architectures? Yeah. I think it's a systems engineering and, and a feature and a cost analysis. There are, I've, seen some off, I've seen some offerings, some tools for folks, uh, upstarts or startups. I've seen some offerings from startups that use artificial intelligence to sort of run models to see which um, platform would cost the least, comparing Azure, Google, Microsoft, AWS. And th they'll actually do a census of how much CPU and how much storage you have, how many users you have, your network, and they'll give you rough orders of magnitude costs to, to replicate that. But that's, that's a lift and a shift model. That's actually taking advantage. That's not taking advantage of the Elastic Cloud it's actually just moving your workload straight to the cloud. The comparison that's much more difficult is going from your existing solution to a cloud-native solution, taking advantage of fully managed services, and that cost calculation can be quite comprehensive. We're going to pause here for a short break. My guest today is Dave Vinegren, Director of Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. General Dynamics Information Technology and CSRA are now one company offering next-generation solutions across the government. We support the warfighter, the intelligence community, the research scientist, and our citizens. Partnering with our government customers, we're delivering advanced cloud cybersecurity, managed services, and enterprise IT solutions to transform government today. With General Dynamics Information Technology, next is here. Discover more at GDIT.com. Welcome back to the discussion, Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guest today is Dave Venegren, 
Director, Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology, and I'm your moderator, John Gilroy. You know, Dave, you have a lot of experience in data science. It just wasn't invented overnight, was it? So what are its origins? Yeah, thanks, John. I have far too many years in data science. Um, I, I have many years using tools, extracting insights from data. You know, I have my master's degree. We talked about this earlier in computer science, and I specialized in artificial intelligence back then, even in my graduate school days. And you know, over time, I've been called an AI researcher, a knowledge engineer, a data miner, and now I'm called a data scientist. They're all good titles, and but they all do essentially the same thing. They're all about extracting and preparing data, analyzing it with statistical methods or mathematical methods or machine learning methods or other heuristics. And then all for what? To produce an actionable insight. So I'd say the origin of data science is really, it's a recent term, but it's the nexus of statistical, mathematical, and machine learning methods. Yeah, when I think of science, I think of uh, uh, a hypothesis and testing the hypothesis, you know. When I think of an analyst, I think of an analyst maybe as as someone maybe lower down the food chain, maybe using tools and and assembling information to hand them to the data scientist to use some of this analytical ability. Is that a good differentiation? That's a good way of thinking of it. You know, data science as a science is really ad hoc and heuristic. Um, The science part of it would perhaps lean towards the mathematical and statistical proofs. But if you think about machine learning and AI, really what we're doing is building heuristic models that we can't even explain fully. They're typically black boxes. So um, the best we can achieve there would be empirical results. You know, being a good scientist, you could test um, and achieve the same result twice and call it a repeatable event. Uh, But I think data science, it it stretches the word science out of its meaning. Um, I typically think of a data scientist as somebody who's We call them coders, people who can write software using tools like Python or R or other languages, SQL perhaps. They can actually write software or use packages like famous, um, like scikit-learn and NumPy and Pandas and use those packages to achieve some objective. So we call them coders because they're actually writing code, typically in in a notebook or in a program. We call data analysts clickers because they're typically using tools where you drag and drop and connect things. And you can get a lot done, but you don't have as much control. The the data analysts are doing the same thing as a data scientist, looking for insights, trying to prove or disprove a theory or hypothesis. And they should be be intuitive. They should use data visualization. So whether or not you're a clicker or a coder, I think you are in the same family doing the same sorts of things, teasing insights out of data. I want to come up with a quote here from 1961 and see if it applies or not. And the quote's real simple. The purpose of computing is insight, not numbers. I mean, that's what you do. I mean, that's that should be on the business card of all data scientists, it sh- insight. It should. It should. And for a long time, people said it's not about the data science. It's about the actionable insights. And even at insights themselves, if they're not actionable, people would argue, well, so what? What's the business value? What's the mission impact? So the actionable, I would just insert actionable in front of that <laughs> great, great quote. Yeah, yeah. Everyone uses this phrase artificial intelligence, and mm-hmm. you've been dabbling in it for decades here. So, so you know, what's the role of it in da- data science? I think AI is fundamental to data science because it's one of the core tools we use. We use data visualization. We use plotting. You know, we do profiling. But AI, specifically machine learning, where we learn from um, examples, large amounts of data is the core to today's data science renaissance. 
There's tools that have been available for a long time to do machine learning. Recent developments with advanced machine learning algorithms have made more people more powerful more quickly. So that's kind of where the data science renaissance has come from. Yeah. And so um, what artificial intelligence does, it supplies more information for a data science to use analytical abilities to examine what part of the 100 data sets are we going to take a look at, and perhaps AI could help in evaluating it because you don't walk in a situation and know exactly what you're going to look at. Which haystack is the needle in? You may have 300 haystacks. Yeah, yeah that's a good way of, of des- describing it. I would say that we use artificial intelligence machine learning algorithms to learn a pattern from a labeled data set. So we may have examples of handwriting or pictures, labeled cat, dog, and house. And we learn from those examples and we bring in thousands, millions of examples. And we bring in thousands and we learn the pattern using the machine learning algorithms. They develop a model. And from there, we apply it to your big data stream, this endless large stream, and we look for similar patterns. And we label things. This is your needle in the haystack. We say this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a house. So where does deep learning fit in? Is this the uh, result of all this analysis? Is that what deep learning is? No, it's a great question. Deep learning, I would break it down into two parts. Deep learning um, right now is a big buzzword and a lot of hype. But what really deep learning, and this is what makes me so exciting at cocktail parties. I get to explain (laughs) the definition here. We've been using a lot of machine learning methods for years, hundreds of algorithms, CART, SVM, regression, families regression trees. One of the the families of algorithms we've been using have been called neural networks, and they mimic the brain in some way. Neural networks have been used 20, 25 years. They just recently became, in the last four years, very popular and powerful because we could stack neural networks up so one neural network would extract a feature and feed it to the next. And that stacking, that hierarchy, is where the phrase deep comes from. So deep learning simply means neural networks that are stacked. So in in a perfect world, then, that will allow a data scientist to make conclusions for actionable insight, hopefully. Exactly. And the cool thing about these deep learning algorithms is that they were computationally expensive running on CPUs, and we couldn't afford to build them. Thanks to gamers and NVIDIA and GPUs, now we can train these models in a fraction of the time, and we can build models to detect anything and everything. We've made detection that much um, that much cheaper and economical. Wonderful. We're going to pause here for a short break. My guest today is Dave Venegrand, Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. General Dynamics Information Technology and CSRA are now one company offering next-generation solutions across the government. We support the warfighter, the intelligence community, the research scientist, and our citizens. Partnering with our government customers, we're delivering advanced cloud, cybersecurity, managed services, and enterprise IT solutions to transform government today. With General Dynamics Information Technology, Next is here. Discover more at GDIT.com. Welcome back to the discussion, Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology on 
Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guest today is Dave Vinegren, Director, Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, and let me talk about the big 500-pound elephant in the room. You know, a lot of federal agencies have existing systems, and whether we like it to say it or not, they get there in the morning and they seem to do their job fairly well in some indications. And so um, um, even if you want to make a transition, people may say, now, wait a minute, the existing system, it works and it's compliant. I don't want to go into something that may not work and may not be compliant. So, Dave, what do you think? I think that uh, what you state is an obvious risk. I think a lot of CIOs and CTOs would like to keep that compliance uh, in place and the risk lower. But there's a new generation or maybe there's a new way perhaps to think about what working means. So many times we are asked to come into an agency and bring data together from three, four, 54 source systems to answer very difficult questions. And those systems are typically stovepipe. They don't share information. Breaking down those stovepipes is a difficult proposition. It takes a long time to model that data. So while those systems are working, they're transactionally doing what they need to do, pay Medicare, make Medicare payments, issue refunds to um, taxpayers. They're not designed for any other purpose. And if you, ha- if you ask that data set to do fraud detection or healthcare um, analysis or disease management, it can't do it. It simply doesn't have enough data. So we need to bring data from other systems together. And that's what I say. Yeah, they're sort of working, but they're working for one purpose when they have this valuable amount of information that when combined with other systems could answer so many more questions and be um, reduce costs, be more innovative. I'm thinking about an automobile analogy here. We have a car in the garage that's an old eight-cylinder. Yes, it starts. Yes, it gets you down the road. Yeah. But you know what? There may be better ways to skin the cat, maybe something more efficient, maybe something gives you more op- options that you didn't have with the older system. I think so. I think that if you opt – so let's just, let's say we're not going to bring – we're not bringing data together for answering a new question. We're simply trying to optimize or improve that car. So if you think about what we have to do to make a transactional system work, we have to have – a building, air conditioning, electricity, CPUs, system administrators, network administrators, software maintainers, all those people just to keep a database up. None of that is the mission. None of that's the application. What if you could flip a switch and just pay somebody to do all that? That would be a cloud provider. And the cloud provider would give you everything, a fully managed database. Now start from there and build your application. And by the way, that cloud service provider has optimized it. It can scale when there's more demand. You can turn it off when you're not using it. You go back to that data center in Maryland or in Virginia, it's going to be running 24-7. And they're going to be looking for more tenants all the time to help defer the cost and and kind of share the pain. When you go to a cloud service provider, that infrastructure is where you start. So it makes life a lot easier for optimizing and improving the performance of that old V8. So when it comes to migration... How can an agency plan for a migration effort and still maintain some of that compliance that they had? That's a terrific question. It's a difficult question. I think we touched on this earlier. What tools are available? There's a, there's a significant amount of systems engineering, system architecture, best practices, design patterns. All of this is good engineering work, good consult, consulting work. There's tools to help you along the way. There's tools to help you... Um, do an, a census and an assessment of your current portfolio to help decide which which um, 
to help decide which data and which applications are likely to be moved and to teach kind of help you identify which ones should be lifted and shifted versus which should be re-architected in a cloud native setting. But there are, um, this is an emerging market. This is where startups are coming on with AI-based solutions to sort of help answer that question. It's a very rich topic and a rich area. Earlier, we were talking about uh, innovation and systems that can use artificial intelligence to look at existing systems. Mm-hmm. So you may be able to take and use one of these tools to look at your system to make sure they can make that transition and still be in compliance. Is that right? I think that at the, the base level here, we're talking about re-architecting for the cloud. So we're going to take advantage of the services, the security and privacy securities, the data at rest, the data encryption, the data in motion the um, ability to set up identity and access controls. I think we're talking about a completely new way to to ensure compliance. The old system is compliant, as you say, so keep it running. The new one that you're developing, we have to test it to make certain that it really meets those compliance. I don't know of a way to do a lift and shift of a compliance regime. There are ways to integrate identity and access management solutions, but I think that in the end, you're, um, you'll find that it's an engineering job to take advantage of this higher, better, more interesting, more comprehensive compliance regime that's available from the cloud providers. Earlier, you mentioned the term silos, and I would imagine that an existing system would have uh, silos with perhaps redundant data and maybe outdated data in there, too. So that has to be part of the whole uh, equation when you look at a system and, and moving into the cloud, don't you? It does. It is an interesting question because there's a great tension here between data scientists who never throw anything away. They're the hoarders mm. of data. You walk through their houses and it's filled with newspapers and cats. And then you have your system engineers who want to have the third normal form, most efficient um, representation of data. So <clears throat> we try to we try to bring those two worlds together. We have what we call bimodal uh, or logical data architectures where you have a data lake that can hold everything you've ever had that might have value in the future. And you have your data warehouse, which has been modeled on the principles of removing redundant data, having a single uh, source of truth. So we, we live in both worlds at once, if you will. And there must be some tension there within the people analyzing systems, I would imagine. It, well, it turns out the, the data scientists and their, their hoarding habits um, get to answer really interesting questions that aren't operationalized. They tend to be ad hoc or they tend to be emergent. Something just happened we need to know. And our systems that have been modeled for years in a data warehouse or in a database, completely optimized for speed and performance, can spit out a dashboard or report but can't answer the question that hasn't been asked before. So I don't know if there's a tension as much as there's a collaboration. I'd like to thank today's guest, Dave Venegren, Director, Data and Analytics, General Dynamics Information Technology. I'm John Gilroy on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Data and Analytics Month. Thank you for listening to Maximizing Data and Analytics in Government, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. The entire program is available on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search GDIT. General Dynamics Information Technology and CSRA are now one company offering next-generation solutions across the government. We support the warfighter, the intelligence community, the research scientist, and our citizens. 
Partnering with our government customers, we're delivering advanced cloud, cybersecurity, managed services, and enterprise IT solutions to transform government today. With General Dynamics Information Technology, Next is here. Discover more at GDIT.com. 